join with me in John chapter 13. In the last year for which we have numbers and statistics, Georgia Baptist churches uh, have uh, suffered terribly when it comes to evangelism and baptisms. In fact, nearly 50% of our churches, of Georgia Baptist churches in the state of Georgia, did not baptize a single person. 47.7% of churches. In fact, we now have about twice as many megachurches as we had in the year uh, 1998, and they baptized 700 fewer, 700 fewer than they did in 1998 with just the uh, half the number of churches. This is a day when I believe most of our churches have given up on sharing the good news with the culture. And so I don't believe there's any such thing as a pastor who's too evangelistic. There's just some, or church, that's too evangelistic. Uh, there's just some churches not as evangelistic as others is essentially the uh, case. That's why in your worship guide today, you've got a Grow Outreach Team commitment form. And at the end of the service, when the offering plate comes by, I want you to place this in the offering plate. I want you to fill it out uh, entirely and completely and uh, be a part of this. For eight Sundays between next Sunday afternoon, uh, September 23rd to November 25th, uh, we're going to ask our folks to give um, no more than two hours, maybe an hour in September, maybe an hour in October, maybe an hour in October, an hour in November to help us do some outreach, either by writing cards, making calls, or making visits. That's entirely up to you. We'll start at 4.15, we'll be done by 5.15, but we're going to make an impact on the community, and really, it makes no difference how other churches are doing. Beach Haven's going to follow the New Testament and the commands of our Lord. We're going to be different. And we're going to make an impact on our world. Now, as churches pull back from sharing the good news with the world, what you've got to understand is that that means our state is less and less familiar with the love of God. L listen to me. Christians and churches have a monopoly on God's love. God has not given the message of His love to mosques where our Muslim friends meet. He's not given it to the Hindus and the Hindu temples where they meet. He's not done that at all. He's not given it to the Buddhist and the Buddhist. Oh, no. He's not given it to any governing entity. The church and Christian people have a monopoly on the love of God, and Beach Haven refuses steadfastly to keep the love of God to itself. We're going to make it known far and wide. And we're, not, we're going to make sure that our region here in northeast Georgia knows of the love of God in Christ Jesus because we have been here. In fact, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you this morning. And that is, have you ever had an ugly cry? Have you ever had that? Do you know what I mean by an ugly cry? It's not just merely whimpering. I mean, it's where you cannot control uh, the guttural sounds that come out of your body cavity, and you cannot control the tear ducts. I mean, it's like some kind of wet explosion uh, that's, that, for me, is terribly embarrassing. I, I've had two ugly cries, and, and they're related to each other, and they're about 13 years apart. Uh, when I left uh, Texas to move to California after my mother's death, I, I was somewhat numb two weeks after her death and passing and her funeral. It was a tough time. 
but I didn't show an awful lot of emotion until my grandfather came by my grandmother's house. My mother's father came by my father's mother's house and where I was staying and I was about to, uh, my brother and sister and I were about to leave there and move with my father and my stepmother where my father was stationed uh, at a naval air station in California. And my grandfather came by and visited with me for a while and he gave me my favorite candy bar, a Milky Way. And he gave me some money. And he hugged me and he said, son, I love you. And I don't know why. I'd heard that before from him. But it broke me. Um, he turned around and went back to his ranchero, which was the Ford version of the El Camino. He went back to that, got in his car, and I flipped around and I found my grandmother. And I buried my face in her shoulder. And I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed. First time in my life I ever had what I would call today an ugly cry. It was so bad, I thought I was going to die. That's how bad it was. Well, we, we did move, and um, life was really difficult. Our external circumstances improved, but a big hole grew in my heart. And I pursued everything I could that was legitimate and parental approved to fill that up. And nothing could fill it until when I was 16 years old, I met Jesus. And Jesus came into my heart and life, and I experienced a love like no one had, like I'd never known before. He came into my heart and my life, and he began to guide my life with where I was to go to school and, and uh, what I was to do with my life and some decisions to, to make. And I was amazed because I was the last person on the earth that would ever make a good and wise decision. But God was guiding me and directing me with what to do with my, um, with my life. And so that's, uh, that's how God guided me. Now, eight years later, after my conversion, I'm 24 years old. I, I've preached a lot of youth camps. I have uh, known thousands of teenagers up to this time. And uh, I've, I've gotten to know the best people on the planet. And I can tell you about so many of these. But one Christmas, during my second year in seminary, I went from Fort Worth to visit my grandparents, my mother's parents, who by this time had moved to Mississippi. And I spent the Christmas time with them. I added a day to my trip to go just across the border into Alabama, to Monroeville, Alabama, where a youth group had invited me to come after the Christmas holidays to hang out with them for a day. I, I didn't think it was very, you know, that big of a deal. I, I, I thought, well, why would you want me to hang out with you during the Christmas holidays? Well, I got there, and I was overwhelmed by the appreciation that they had had for me and, and the ministry and service I had performed for their student ministry as a camp pastor. Uh, they, they had come to youth camps where I'd been preaching two summers in a row, and, and I, I spent the entire day amazed and stunned that I had meant so much to them. You know what, what was neat? I discovered I was important to someone outside my family. And folks, I just couldn't believe it. Now, people had told me this before, but it overwhelmed me. Now, there's a second thing that happened during this Christmas vacation. And that is, before going into Alabama to visit this youth group, this student ministry, I was on the phone with a young lady one day that I would marry. And while on the phone with her, and immediately after, God's Spirit spoke to my heart and said, marry her. My first reaction was, all right. My second reaction was, oh, no. Nothing wrong with her. But the 
burden and weight of responsibility of being her husband overwhelmed me. And it shook me because the history of my family was not that good. The history of my friends was not that good when it came to that. And so I was overwhelmed that God had laid on my heart to pursue her and put a ring on that girl's finger. I heard that right after Christmas in 1989. And by May, there was a ring on her finger. And by October, the vows were said because God directed me. So here's what I've got. It's eight years after my conversion. The first 16 years of my life were nothing but chaos with death and broken marriages and busted family and all of that. And I'm leaving Monroeville, Alabama to return back to Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm driving through the downtown area and I'm thinking about how much love God has shown me within me just, just these few hours. And I have my second ugly cry. But this one was happy. It was so bad, I had to get off of the downtown road where I was and pull over into a parking lot and have a minute. I had to have an hour. <laughs> it, it, it was that. I mean, every ugly, guttural sound came up from within. And every bit of moisture in my body burst out of my eyes, it seemed. I flooded my pickup truck with an ugly cry. And you know what occurred to me? The first 16 years of my life were spent in what I thought was a loveless existence. In less than half that time, God had made up for it through his son Jesus and all of his people. Do you know why that happened? <laughs> because somebody shared the love of God with me. It started with some middle school boys in middle school who invited me to church and uh, with Miss Krause and Jerry Knudsen and Gary Casey, who were fearless in preaching the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, it made all the difference in the world. Can I tell you something? I want the rest of our state to know that. But I'm really worried that we are getting to a place where that will become less and less likely. There are many, many reasons. But has, uh, have some of you noticed that the hospitable southern United States is not all that hospitable anymore? Now, if you're from some other region of the country, I don't mean to be offensive, but it's supposed to be as sweet as sweet tea in the South. And it's not anymore. We, we've been known through the years for having Southern hospitality, from Texas to Georgia up to Virginia, and occasionally including Maryland. We're supposed to be known as sweet people. But ladies and gentlemen, that is vanishing and disappearing, and the sweetness is being replaced with suspicion and distance. And it has accelerated the last few years because of smartphone screens where people are isolated from one another. That means people have fewer and fewer opportunities to experience the love of God. Now, we could get into the family issues and the marriage issues, and those uh, compound the challenge and the difficulty. But I had a lot of those when I was a kid in my own family and still met the love of God. Folks, we've got a big challenge before us, and that is to declare the good news of the love of God found in Christ Jesus. And that's why I've invited you to John chapter 13. Here in this text, Jesus humiliates himself in order to extend his love and love his disciples until the very end. John chapter 13 and verse number 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now John is fond of words with double meaning. And that's what he does here. He loved them to the end at the end of verse 1. That means he loved them to the end of his time on earth. So there is a time reference here. But that's not all. He loved them, the, double, the other meaning is, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them utterly. He loved them to the length of his ability. So it's talking about quantity love, but it's also talking about quality love as well. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Jesus loved them intensely, and he loved them to the end of his life, and he loved them to the full extent of his ability in John chapter 13. And so this morning, I want to address that very thing uh, here in the text, the love stretch. And I want to ask and answer the question, what does it mean for Jesus to stretch in love? Well, there are several things that surface in the text, and the the first thing is this. Jesus' love stretches through the roughest of problems. Oh, there are all sorts of problems in John chapter 13. It's the Passover feast, and Jesus could have been distracted by preparations. He was the host of it. He had to make sure everything was arranged for the Passover feast. And then, that's not all. None of these fellows, when they get into the upper room, none of these fellows wash the other's feet. And so they're in a place where there's a bunch of dirty feet. And it was customary for feet to be washed when they walked into a room such as this, especially for a holy occasion like the Passover. Well, no one's doing that. They're all overlooking it. And Jesus has to take that up himself. But, but then that's not all. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed and that the betrayer is in the room. And in verse 21, it says, his soul was exceedingly troubled. So this is all what's going on there. Well, Jesus begins to wash their feet, and guess who challenges him? (laughs) Peter. As if Peter's got standing to challenge him. Listen, Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him that evening. And the others are going to flee. And so Jesus has all of these circumstances swirling, and still, nevertheless, he loves them to the full extent of his love, to the very end of his life. There was not a rough problem that could keep him from loving them, and there's not a rough problem that could keep him from loving you. When I came to Jesus Christ, I had come to the end of my athletic skills, busting any dreams I had had for at least a college career, maybe a professional career one day in that area. Let me tell you, I wasn't that good, but I I was that optimistic, but I wasn't that good. Uh, Jesus didn't care that I was from a broken family and a broken home. Jesus did not care that I was having some difficulty with my parents. Jesus didn't care that I was a nervous and sometimes awkward teenage kid that really felt out of place. There was nothing in the world that kept Jesus from loving me. And there's nothing that you brought into this room today that can keep Jesus from loving you. Jesus' love stretches through the roughest of problems. It makes no difference what station in life you're in. Jesus has a love that is not contingent upon you, that is not contingent or based upon any circumstance that you have brought here today or that you have at any moment of your life. There's nothing that can hinder his love. Now look at verse 3. In verse 2, the supper was ended 
the devil, who's always present in worship, put it into Judas Iscariot's heart to betray Jesus. And then verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he'd come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper. That's what he did. Jesus here is presented in verse 3 as the perfect creator of all. He has all authority because the Father's given all things into his hands. His origin is from God and from heaven. He's going to the throne to rule over all. This is a clear statement of his deity. Do you know what this means? That means not only is there nothing in you that can hinder his love, there's nothing in Jesus that can hinder his love for you. I mean, sometimes parents get into a fix in their lives. They are struggling. They're difficult. And on occasion, they may focus so much on themselves or they may focus on their work or some problem that they may, their children may go through a time of neglect where they overlook them. Do you understand? That has never happened with Jesus. Jesus has no addictions. Jesus has no mental illness. Jesus Jesus had a perfect relationship with his mother. Jesus had a perfect relationship with his father. There are no complaints on his part towards either one. Jesus has nothing in his heart, soul, mind, or strength to keep him from loving you. He is perfectly postured and positioned and pleased to pour out every bit of love that he has upon you. Hey, there are times when maybe you have felt like your marriage is on the rocks, that your job is on the line. That a friendship is about to come to end. Do you know you'll never face that circumstance with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? There'll never be a time when, there'll never be a time when his love for you will be on the rocks. There'll never be a time at all whenever uh, it is on the line. There'll never be a time when it is threatened to come to an end. Jesus loves everyone to the very end and the full extent of his love. Praise God, what a great love Savior he is. So Jesus' love stretches through the roughest of problems. But there's a second thing. Jesus' love stretches for the closest of positions. Now, each one of these disciples, except for John, is going to fail. Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. Peter's going to deny him. And except for John, the other nine are going to scatter despite their declared loyalty to Jesus Christ. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He's prophesied it and uh, has said it on a couple of occasions in the Gospels. He knows what is up for their future and how they're going to fail. Well, can you imagine after they all fail, except for John, how they feel about one another? Can you imagine the animosity directed towards Peter? Can you imagine the temptation to hate Judas and then to project that onto the others? In the group. In other words, there is a great risk here that they would divide from one another instead of embrace the mantle of the Great Commission and go into the world to declare the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus knows this is going to happen, and so Jesus acts out a parable. He acts out an allegory. He engages in foot washing. Now, there are many that misunderstand this passage and think that foot washing here in the text is about service. Well, that, that might be tangential, but it is more about forgiveness. And that's how Jesus himself explains it in the text. And usually they would be walking around, their feet would get dirty. And if they were going to a special ceremony, well, they had cleaned up before. 
And the disciples, before this evening meal that they had prepared, had cleaned up. They're they're observing the Passover, that he would transition into the Lord's Supper. They had cleaned up. They had cleaned up well. The best clothes they have, they are wearing to this particular uh, meal. And they have to walk along the road to get there. And their feet are dirty by the time they get into the upper room. And they need to be washed and cleansed. Well, none of the other disciples took up the task of washing others' feet, so Jesus does it himself. He removes his outer garment. He wraps his waist with the towel. He fills a water, a basin with water, and then he goes from person to person and cleans their feet. Now, that's typically what a menial, lowly servant would do. And Jesus takes up that task. And so there is in verses 4 and 5 a cleansing that takes place. But then he has to clarify these things in verses 6 through 17. And look there in verse 6 through 17. He first clarifies the meaning. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know this after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Simon Peter said, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, well, he who's bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Well, that's the meaning of foot washing. Jesus is cleansing. Now, John likes double meanings to words. And Jesus is saying here, you in being converted to me, that's like you're cleansing before the supper. That's like you taking a bath before the supper. But now that you've been defiled by walking in the world, you need uh, a little cleansing of your feet. And that's the way it is with our walk with Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ the first time and are then completely cleansed, but then we walk through the world and we become defiled. And so regularly we need to be cleansed by God on a regular basis. Not that we lose our salvation, but we can lose our fellowship. Now, that's clarifying the meaning. Now, here's, he's clarifying the message uh, as well in verses 10, or excuse me, verse um, 12 through 17. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, Do you know what I've done for you? Well, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, which is an affirmation of his deity. And so I am, I, Yahweh. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Again, double meanings to these words. I have cleansed you from worldly defilement. I have extended forgiveness to you. Now I want you to do the same. I've set an example for you that you should follow. And that would be a great timely word to come in handy after they had all betrayed the Lord. And so he's clarifying the message here. It is first a message of renewal. We come to Jesus Christ as Savior. We are eternally, spontaneously, immediately, eternally cleansed and forgiven of sin. And so we establish a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But then we walk through the world and we can become defiled. We can become defiled with apathy or laziness or indifference. We we can become defiled with worldliness or lust or greed, some other sin. It doesn't break the relationship just like it did not here. 
Instead, it can break the fellowship and the closeness. And Jesus Christ is always angling in our lives to get us as close to Him as is possible this side of His personal presence in heaven. That's what He's doing here. And so He clarifies uh, the message here, and it's a message of renewal. And, And then it's a message of reconciliation. He wants them to do for them as He has done for them. And so to summarize, when we come to Christ as Savior, we have an eternal relationship with Him. Uh, My children will always be my children. It doesn't mean that I'm happy with them if they misbehave, which would happen far less than what you would think with most preachers' kids. But uh, the truth is, uh, it doesn't mean that when they misbehave that the relationship is broken, but the fellowship may be ruptured. And some of you don't feel very close to God today. Some of you might feel estranged and you may feel a bit distant. You know you know Christ, but there's something just not right between you and God. It could be that you need what has taken place here. You need a renewal. You need a cleansing. You need some confession. It doesn't mean the relationship with Jesus Christ has been broken. It just means it needs to be renewed. And so daily and frequently you need to come before God and confess sin And Jesus is willing to do this. And Jesus approaches you when you have need for renewal of your walk with Him. He approaches you just like He approached the disciples when He washed their feet. That's what He does. I want to encourage you. Sunday, October the 7th, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus' own death. And I want to ask you to do this. I want you to think through. Where have I erred? Where have I sinned? And trust the one who washes and cleanses feet and bring that to him. In fact, I may bring to you a list of potential sins to pray through and meditate through. I don't want you to be morbid. I don't want you to spend forever on it. But go before God and ask God, God, have I drifted from you? Is there something errant in my life? Am I engaged in something? God, I need to get clean before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus is always angling to get us into the closest position. He does that because He loves us. And He promises in James 4.8, If you'll draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And friend, I want to tell you, I've known Him since 1982. And He's never failed to keep that promise. And so Jesus' love, Jesus' love stretches for the closest position. But, but there's a third thing from the text. And that is Jesus' love stretches to the cruelest person. We're talking, of course, about Judas Iscariot. Is there any more vile name in the Bible than Judas Iscariot? I think it's almost synonymous with Satan in many ways. I've known many children to be named John and David and Timothy. I've known children to be be named Rebecca. And, and other names, the Hannahs and the Sarahs as well. Have you ever known anyone to name their children Judas? I've never known anyone to name their dog Judas. We love our pets too much to give them the name Judas. Now I can imagine naming a cat Judas, but maybe not a dog. But Judas was not known for the treachery he committed against Christ when he was with Jesus. The disciples' perspective on Judas was entirely different than ours. 
See, we know what happened. They're at a point before the betrayal, and they trust Judas so much, they make Judas the treasurer of the group. Judas is involved in poverty ministry. Judas went on mission trips with the other disciples in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. Judas has heard all the words of Jesus and responded to them. Not entirely and sincerely, but he's at least gone through the motions enough that when Jesus says in this text, someone's going to betray me, no one suspected Judas Iscariot. Judas is connected to the religious leadership of Jerusalem. Judas is very religious. And Judas has inspired the trust of the other disciples so much so that he is the treasurer of this group. That's who Judas was at this time. And Jesus announces in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted his heel against me. And he says, I'm... I want you to know, I know who it is, so you'll believe that I'm God when it happens. Verse 21, when Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and said, most assuredly, uh, in the Greek text, it's amen, amen. That's another way of saying emphatically with divine attestation, with divine approval. I say to you, one of you will betray me. And all the disciples look at one another and they say, who? And Peter looks at John, who's very close to Jesus physically, in close physical proximity. Hey, ask him who it is. And Jesus says in verse 26, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. They're celebrating the Passover. There's a point in the Passover meal, it can be formal or informal, where the host of the head of the table takes some bread that's got between it some herbs and dips it into a sop or a paste. And to honor someone, he gives it to that person. Jesus says, I'm going to honor Judas. They don't know it's Judas. But Jesus honored Jewish during the Passover celebration. And it was sometimes a way that the head of the household or the host of the Passover supper would say, let's reconcile. So you can see a powerful symbol, not only in the foot washing, but the offering of this bread and herb and sop mixture. Jesus is extending himself. Jesus is stretching to Judas Iscariot. And he's saying, whatever you're going to gain by betraying me, it's nothing like what I'm offering you. And he's saying the same thing to you today. You don't have to do this. Turn to me. Trust me. Embrace me. You don't have to leave here like this. Jesus stretched his love to the cruelest of persons. At the 11th hour and the 59th minute and the 59th second, Jesus seeks to love Judas Iscariot and he seeks to love you today. You have not brought into this worship center under the prayer and praise and preaching of the Word of God. Anything that has to keep you from Jesus. 
There is nothing so large, nothing so scandalous, nothing so embarrassing that at this moment, if you were to repent and trust Him, He would not intervene and change everything about your walk with Him, your future eternity, and your current life. Nothing at all. You don't have to continue going on the way that you have gone. Not at all. In fact, Jesus stretches his love to the most cruel people in the world. And so Jesus even now is loving you to the very end no matter the sins that are stacked up in your closet and your conscience. In other words, even if you were perfect, he could not love you more than he loves you now. And through what we've done here today, he's extending himself to you. He told the story of a young man that was quite cruel to his father that you know is the story of the prodigal son. And there was great joy when the boy returned home. And Jesus said twice and illustrated with that story in Luke 15 something I want you to really hear this morning. He said there is more joy. So there are degrees of joy with God. God gets joy, more joy out of some things than he does others. Here's what he said. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. It would bring great joy to the heart of God even if you were to classify yourself as a Judas Iscariot to forgive you as it would anything in the world. Back in June of this year, seismologists recorded what appeared to be an earthquake in Mexico City. It was very small, it was tremors, but as they studied it, they discovered there was no earthquake at all. But something registered on the Richter scale in Mexico City. And they began to examine and research this, and they came to the conclusion that the Richter scale measured movement on the earth because Mexico beat Germany in the first game of the World Cup soccer tournament. And all the Mexican folk were jumping up and down in Mexico City, and it shook the earth. They were so joyful. You would make God that joyful and more if you were to come to Him today and embrace Him. You say, I know Him. If you were to return to Him. Well, I don't understand all of this. You don't have to. What you've got to know is that we've sinned. Jesus took our place at the cross. He suffered our capital punishment. God the Father raised Him from the dead. And He calls you now to repent or change your mind. Change your mind about your circumstances. You're in a lot of trouble. You've got to become alarmed and make a decision to turn from that. And, and you've got to change your mind about Jesus Christ. He's not merely uh, interesting. He is Lord and Savior. And you trust Him. He's the only hope that you have of being made right with God for eternity or in this life. And then you call on Him. You don't merely assume it happens, you call on Him. Romans 10, 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The author of the hymn Amazing Grace was John Newton, and he said, I'm glad he said whoever, 
Because if he'd said John Newton, I thought I would think he meant someone else and did not mean me. But when he said whoever, that includes me and it includes you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is nothing on the part of God that needs to change. No more preparations need to be made. He's willing to embrace you just as you are. Would you come today? In just a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. Staff will be here in the front to receive you. Would you come and say yes to him? Open up your heart and receive this forgiveness and cleansing Jesus is promising. So some of you have already been cleansed. You, you've received Christ, but you need to come back to God. You come. Some of you are, are standing right with God today, but God's moving on you to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. Why don't you come as well? God may be moving on you for another decision. You can come. Let's pray together.